HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk shop about news, trends, issues, and ideas in the world of K-12 food service. I'm Laura Stanley. Last week, we brought you a conversation about an important new study that systematically looks at what can happen when uh, kitchen staff get training and support from a professional chef. Um, This week, we bring you a different, equally important new study. Um, This one is the latest to look at how kids are accepting their lunches since new nutrition standards went into place in 2012. Uh, Both these studies are big news. They offer data that may inform what happens this September when the child nutrition reauthorization comes around again in Congress. Um, And what's great about research like this is that it is dispassionate. It attempts to tell us plain and simple what is working and what is not working as students spend more time eating meals in compliance with the new regulation. Uh, Today's study was published in the latest issue of the Journal of Child Obesity. The lead author is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, and I'm really pleased to have her on the line today. Welcome, Marlene. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So this study was a project of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at the University of Connecticut. So let me start out by telling listeners a little bit about that. Um, Rudd is an influential research and public policy organization devoted to improving diet, preventing obesity, uh, and reducing weight stigma. Uh, Its work is rooted in a core philosophy of making a difference with a multi- disciplinary approach to research that involves a spectrum of players, including schools, communities, government agencies, scientific and medical communities, and the media. And and I'm really just skimming the surface here. So for folks that want to know more about the Rudd Center, there will be a link on today's show page. Um, And then about uh, Marlene. Uh, Marlene Schwartz is the director at the Rudd Center. She holds a PhD in psychology from Yale University and previously served as co-director of the Yale Center for Eating and 
weight disorders. She has long been involved in anti-obesity work in Connecticut, and much of that work has taken her into schools where she studied wellness policies, preschool nutrition, the effects of food marketing on children, the relationship between food insecurity and nutrition, and much more. So, um, Marlene, to get us started, um, let's can you kind of sum up what the study tells us about the impacts of the new meal pattern on consumption and also waste? Sure. Well, we were interested in doing this study because, you know, we had heard, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners had, that there had been an increase in plate waste when the new nutrition standards went into effect. And we had been collecting data in 12 schools in New Haven, Connecticut, for the last several years as part of a large study looking at the relationship between student health and academic achievement. And so we had an opportunity to use the data we had already collected and compare what the kids were eating and how much they were throwing out both before and after the standards went into effect. And basically what we found was that things looked pretty good. Uh, there was an improvement in the number of kids who were taking fruit and the proportion that were eating that fruit was the same. So effectively there was an increase in the amount of fruit consumed. Mm -hmm. We also saw that while vegetable um, selection went down, the proportion that was consumed went up. And then for the main entree, which was already being selected at a fairly high rate, we saw that that went up even higher and the proportion of that getting consumed went up. So overall, it suggested to us that there was actually not an increase in plate waste and instead we were seeing an increase in the nutritional value of the foods that the kids were eating. And, and in two categories, the vegetables and the entree, we're also looking at lower plate waste. Am I reading that right? Yes, that's correct. Right. Okay. And also, was I correct in saying earlier that this plate waste data is the most recent we have right now? I believe so, yes. Okay. I haven't heard of other studies more recent. Okay. Um, well, we'll we'll find them if they're out there. <laughs> um, so th this is the second major study to look at the impacts of the new nutrition standards. The first one was released about a year ago, and, and some of... Um, our listeners will remember that we discussed it at length on the show in um, June 2014. Um, so, you know, this this new study corroborates um, what what that study found, but how does it further our understanding of what's going on? Well, we were, um, you know, really interested to see how consistent our findings were with the Cohen study. So that was, you know, validating in terms of feeling like our results are going to be generalizable. Um, this really was just adding more information. I mean, I think it's important with this topic to have research from a variety of places um, because this is a national program. So, you know, we felt like it was important to get another, you know, piece of research out there to really, you know, look at the question of plate waste and consumption. So mainly it's about more information. Were there any different findings um, to add to what the earlier study found out? Um, I mean, we did look a little bit more specifically at the percentage consumed of particular fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we have a table in the paper where we actually found that fruit cups <laughs> were the most popular, yeah. which makes sense. Um, it's actually very consistent with the research that kids like to have variety in uh -huh. the foods that they consume. Um, bananas, oranges were also up there. Apples were um, only 48% consumed, which is, you know, the lowest of, of what we looked at, but, you know, is still about half. To the apple. And you know what I would just question about a whole apple. It's 
it takes a long time to eat a whole apple, and I don't know how much time the children in the study had to eat lunch, but that's an issue too. So that makes you wonder. Is. And we, you know, we didn't look at specifically the amount of time in this particular district. They do have a policy that you know children are supposed to have, I believe, um, twenty minutes, mm-hmm. you know, from the time they sit down till the end of the lunch period to eat their lunch. But I agree. I think that um, time is often a problem, and and we also had done some work with this district. Um, to try to help them prepare the fruits in a way that would be easier for the small kids to eat, so right. fruit slicers and that sort of thing. Right, right. So how many schools did you study and how many students were involved? Uh, we had 12 different schools. Um, they were all K-8 through eight schools, and we were following a cohort of students. So in 2012, the first year of our data, the students in our study were in fifth grade, mm-hmm. um, and we had about 500 students that year. And then we followed them in sixth and seventh grade, and their numbers did go down over the years. Um, so it was 373 students the third year, 465 the second year. Going down because as they got older, in other words. It went down, although this really, this was one of the things that um, was sort of, uh, I guess, a little unfortunate about the study, we weren't looking at participation in the school lunch program. So you really can't use our data to say anything at all about participation in the school lunch program Mm because you wouldn't go in, um, you know, just one day. You would look at the data on participation for the whole year. So we have um, looked at some of the other data that's available in the district, and there had been um, a slight decrease in participation, um, but we also know from historical data that that decrease had been happening for quite a while, and mm-hmm. so you can't really blame it on the changes to the school. Right, program. and that's something we've seen nationally and that we've actually talked about a lot on on the show. So um, you looked at plate waste. That was how you measured the amount being consumed in the three categories, right? Right. And and you and you looked, you had the earlier data from before the when the nutrition's went into effect, and then and then you have three two other data sets, and I wonder if you could talk about when those when that data was collected and what the differences are between them. Sure. So um, for each year of the study, we collected the data in the spring. So we tried to control for any seasonal variations. So mm-hmm. everything was collected in April, May, or June. And um, in 2012, which was spring of 2012, was prior to the changes in the program. That's the first year of data collection. And then afterwards, we have spring 2013 and spring 2014. Um, And so we were able then to look at the mean percentage consumed um, of each of the food groups from each of those years and look for significant differences. And what we found was there was a significant increase in the amount of the entree that was being consumed. So it went from 70.9% in 2012. And then if you look at the 2014 numbers, it's 83.6. So that went up. Mm-hmm. Um, the fruit consumption stayed stable. So it was 72, 60, 74, no significant differences across the years. But the number of kids who took it went up. So mm-hmm. that was what we were excited by. Um, and then vegetable consumption went from 45 to 39 to 64. So it did go up significantly from the first year to the last year. And and what does that tell us? 
Well, it tells us that the children are basically accepting the new um, entrees and the kids who were taking the vegetables were eating more of them um, and that the kids overall as sort of a student body were consuming more fruit because more kids were taking the fruit and the amount that was consumed per serving was the same. So mm -hmm. there's an overall increase in the volume of fruit consumed. Right. Um, right. I should mention milk stayed completely stable across all three years. It was... Um, a little more than half was getting consumed. It was sort of a little more than half was getting taken, so about mm -hmm. half the kids were taking the milk, and then of that, half of the milk that they took was getting consumed. So right. those right. numbers were surprisingly similar across the right. years. Right, right. Just as an aside, this not that it really impacts the study, but I just noted with interest that this is a district that does not offer flavored milk yeah. um, and also doesn't offer competitive foods at lunchtime, and, and it has a very high free-reduced rate. So, so the, the, you know, the lack of competitive foods and the high free-reduced rate, I would assume, would contribute to the, you know, the success of the, you know, the new meals or the participation in the program. I think that that is fair to say. You know, this is a district that um, is a very low-income district, and because such a high number of the kids uh, qualify for free or reduced lunch, they actually offer universal free lunch and breakfast in this district. And I think that that does a couple of things. One, I think that the district really sees providing healthy meals as part of their mission as a school district. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like the food services is sort of added on component. It's really central to the way this district views itself. And because of that, they have made these other decisions. They removed competitive foods um, a number of years ago. I, I been, you know, several years prior to this study, um, they removed vending machines from their schools way before it became the law in the state of Connecticut, which was 2006. Mm -hmm. And they really, um, you know, try to make sure that what is available for the kids to eat in the school is completely consistent with the nutrition messages that they're getting in the classroom. Right, right. Okay. So I said earlier that research of this kind is valuable because it's nonpartisan. Um, but this study is not without its detractors, um, most notably the School Nutrition Association. So I, I want to talk about that next after a quick station break. Um, this is Inside School Food, and today's conversation is with Dr. Marlene Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today we are digging into a study that you have likely heard about already as it was widely reported when it was released last month. It has a prosaic name, as these studies always do. It's called New School Meal Regulations Increase Fruit Consumption and Do Not Increase Total Plate Waste, which tells us just a tiny piece of the story. I'm, so I'm thrilled to have the lead author, Dr. Marlene Schwartz, with us today to unpack the details. So um, Marlene, the School Nutrition Association um, has been critical of your study's methodology. You know, what, what, what have they said? 
Well, there were a couple of points that they made, um, which were both valid. Um, so the first point was that they said we only collected data one day per year, which is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, and ideally, it would have been great to be able to collect data, you know, a number of times during the year so that you just had more um, information there. So that is, that's definitely a criticism of the study. And then the other point they made, I think, is a little bit more um, nuanced and, and tricky to understand. But they recited a survey that they had done with their uh, members asking if there had been an increase in plate waste since the nutrition standards changed. And the majority of food service directors answering the survey said that there had been an increase in plate waste. And what I think people don't quite understand is that plate waste and consumption are not opposites. Mm -hmm. that it's completely possible, and I would say in some cases this is exactly what's happening, that there's been an increase in consumption and an increase in plate waste. And with the fruit category, that is what we saw. So if you have three-quarters of every fruit serving getting consumed, if you increase the number of fruit servings that you distribute within the cafeteria, you are going to have an increase in the number of kids who consume three-quarters of a fruit serving, and you are going to have an increase in the number of quarter fruit servings that end up in the garbage. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been this false dichotomy in the dialogue about this that you sort of either are seeing it increasing in consumption or there's an increase in, in plate waste, and that's simply not true. And I, I feel like that's been lost um, in the way that the media and even that the School Nutrition Association has been talking about this. Right. And, and so, you know, uh, it, it, so SNA surveyed its members last November, as you said, and respondents were, you know, are deeply concerned about food waste, which they do see is in connection with the meals. Um, but, you know, as you said, food, it has always been wasted at school, but there's something different now about it. Um, you know, it's, it's fruits and vegetables as opposed to French fries. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Well, one of the, you know, sort of hypotheses I have as to why people get so emotional about this, which, which they do, mm -hmm. um, is that when you are investing in a higher quality, you know, lunch for your students and you know how much it costs to um, buy more fruits and vegetables and, you know, have those available so that every child can take a fruit or a vegetable, I think it is particularly upsetting to see those products in the garbage. So I think that, you know, for decades, kids have been throwing away, you know, hamburgers and pizza and French fries, and the percentage that's gotten thrown away has probably always been about what it is right now. Mm -hmm. But I think because we know that these lunches are better, it's more upsetting to see them thrown away, even if the percentage that's thrown away is exactly the same. Yeah, and that's I, yeah. what I think people just need to acknowledge. And so the real question, I think, is what is the cost of, you know, providing the extra, you know, or higher quality foods that are being provided? And then how does that um, translate into increased consumption of nutritious foods by the children? And to acknowledge that there is going to be some cost associated with that because a certain percentage of that is, has always been and probably always will get thrown away. Right. So part of the reaction is, oh, my gosh, the stuff they're wasting now is so much more expensive than what they wasted before. And, and as you said, it's emotional, too, you know, for food service directors who really care about good food. It, it is upsetting. You know, I spend a lot of time talking. One of my advisors for Inside School Food keeps photographs of wasted fruit on her phone to show people um, gorgeous whole, you know, pink oranges, um, you know, 
ripe pears, local ripe pears at the, you know, the peak of, you know, perfection. And it, it is genuinely upsetting. So, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, it's just we need to be compassionate about how that feels um, in addition to acknowledging the, the cost. Right. No, I think that's true. Right, right. And, and, and food waste is, is such a, you know, right now increasingly a topic of conversation nationally and internationally. I mean, you know, even the Pope has spoken out about it and the, the New York Times recently reported that about one third of all food produced in the world goes uneaten. But, it, you know, it's hardly an issue confined to schools. I think that's something we need to remember also. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the restaurant industry, um, I can only imagine, you know, what it looks like, you know, with the amount of plate waste in restaurants. And so, you know, I think that, you know, you, you just have to remember, you have to compare what's happening now to what's always happened and what happens in similar settings and acknowledge that this is this is really pretty typical. Um, the other sort of interesting thing is, you know, portion sizes may have decreased. Um, in this, in some of the entrees because of mm-hmm. the new calorie cap. So that may actually help in terms of um, the cost. Right, right. So to, just to go back, we were, we were talking about a little bit earlier about um, SNA criticism of the size of your study. Your position is, um, despite the, the limitations in terms of the amount of, you know, of the, or the, 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 the yes, occasions you were able to measure consumption and so forth, you, you feel the outcomes are significant and that we can extrapolate conclusions more generally from this data set. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, even though, you know, it was once a year, it was across 12 different schools um, and it was for three years. So we still had, you know, 36 days of data collection. And, you know, every time we were in there, we were getting um, hundreds of kids, you know, with their 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 plates and um, tracking what they were doing. So I have complete confidence. I mean, I you know, if we'd gone in and looked at ten kids or something, then yeah, I could see people saying you can't draw conclusions. But we, um, you know, we're following the same kids. So in terms of comparability from year to year, I'm very confident in the reliability of our study because we are looking at the same group of kids. So it's not like something else could have been driving differences that we saw. And I guess my other response to that is, you know, there's not a lot of data out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't accept that, you know, a food service director can look in the garbage and take a picture with their phone and say this should apply to policy for the entire country. You know, we need to have actual data that is collected and measured because perceptions can be distorted. And, you know, I would love to see this Nutrition Association commissioned a study of their members to do the exact same type of plate waste assessment we did. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could get more data like that. But I don't think people's, you know, sort of personal perceptions are accurate. I mean, that's why we do research in the first place, because right. people tend to be very inaccurate. Okay. I, I'm glad you mentioned um, your desire for a study from SNA. And in and, and connection with that, I, I, would, I wonder if you could talk about the survey results that they do have. Um, they survey their members in Dece- in um, November, and um, 4.6 um, of the um, districts so- uh, solicited responded. So it's a small sample. And, and, and you had some other comments about it. I mean, in general, does this survey qualify as a study in any way, and why or why not? Well, I mean, I think this survey, you know, does 
sort of exactly, you know, what it is on the, on the base value. I mean, it definitely is getting at the perceptions of the food service directors. And what I, what I thought was a little bit misleading about the way that the questions were asked and answered is they really didn't distinguish between um, additional plate waste that was accompanied by additional consumption, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just saying, do you think that there's been more plate waste? Um, because as I said before, they're not opposites. They actually can exist at the exact same time. And I, you know, I just think that it would be much more helpful if we had some numbers to, you know, put with those responses in terms of, you know, how much was being distributed and then how much was being consumed. Right. And additionally, it would be helpful if there was more info about the free reduced rates of the different um, respondents, but there's there's no participant demographics. Um, right. And there. I yeah. do think a reasonable hypothesis is that um, things may be going better in the districts that have higher free reduced rates mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that those districts um, aren't sort of subject to the same level of economic uncertainty as districts that really rely primarily on kids who are paying for lunch. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one thing. And as I said before, I think sometimes the districts like that have been working on this for a while because they know how big of an issue childhood obesity is mm-hmm. in their district. They see it. And so it may be that they, you know, it just wasn't such a dramatic change for them from 2012 to 2013. Right, right. I, I, I just want to point out that all the research emphasis to date has been on these districts with very high free reduce rates. Um, uh, but you, you have said to me that, you know, there, you feel that districts that hover between 40 and 50 percent free reduced are the ones where, you know, they're running into the most trouble. Um, I, any, any, you know, plans in the pipeline to, to, you know, gather data about them and look at the issues they're facing? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't know. I mean, I was sort of guessing at, you know, who might be in the toughest position. And I think, you know, there's only two studies. So, you know, it happens to be that they were both done in these in these low-income districts, which I think in part is due to the fact that we're very interested in whether or not this program is working for the kids who need it the most. And mm-hmm. so I think that is, you know, really a priority, you know, among the research community is to make sure that, that those are the kids that are getting better nutrition. Um, I just sort of imagine that there are districts that then have extremely low free and reduced rates where they may consider, you know, either not participating in the National School Lunch Program mm-hmm. and just sort of doing things, you know, the way they want to. Or, you know, they, you know, it just sort of feels like they have a little bit more flexibility because the kids can afford, um, you know, to pay for the lunch. But I do worry about the districts in the middle where it's sort of half and half. And I appreciate the concern on which I have heard that, you know, if it becomes really unpopular for kids who can afford not to participate in the lunch to, to choose not to, then it becomes more obvious, you know, who the low-income children are if they're the only ones participating in the lunch program. So, I, you know, I do understand that that is a concern. And, you know, ideally you would want the lunch to be appealing to all of the students so that it didn't have any stigma associated with right. it. Right. Stigma is a huge issue. Well, um, we will be keeping our ear to the ground um, and bringing news of any other interesting new research um, to Inside School Food listeners um, from the Rudd Center and beyond. So, Marlene, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this important uh, study. 
Absolutely. My pleasure. You have been listening to a conversation with Dr. Marlene Schwartz of the Rudd Center for Food Policy in Obesity. On today's show page at InsideSchoolFood.com, you will find links to the Rudd Center, um, to the study we've been discussing today, and the School Nutrition Association's um, November 2014 survey questions and results. Inside School Food is a production of the Heritage Radio Network, so episodes are also archived at heritageradionetwork.org. To upload the show to your mobile device, look for Inside School Food on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Laura Stanley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks.